I'm Matt. And I'm Victoria. And this is When Gathering Light. Join us as we gather stories, resources, and hope with plenty of tears and laughter along the way in partnership with our true source of light, Jesus. Up ahead, there is a time for weeping. Up ahead, there is a time for healing. Up ahead, there is a time for singing. Hello, this is Matt, and we are, uh, this is episode seven of When Gathering Light. In today's episode, Victoria and I are going to discuss the topic of recovery beyond sobriety. Mm. But before we get to that topic, I want to do a shout out to um, Ben Patrick, who is our faithful uh partner here um, helping us with this podcast. He's at Akron Recording uh, Company at AkronRecordingCompany.com or at uh, Akron Recording Company for the social side. And he does a wonderful job of getting us set up and... um, Sounding professional. Sounding professional, which uh, is a challenge. And... um, he does some wonderful editing as well. So, um, and if you have any uh, audio needs, video needs, um, check out AkronRecordingCompany.com. Um, he does podcasts, he does music. Uh, so, give him a shout. He's, uh, he's the man. He's the man. All right. So, recovery. Um, beyond sobriety. What so, do you mean by that? Yeah. yeah. So that's, what do you mean by that, this Matt? is one of my favorite topics in the world because I have been sober for a long time and um, I have been around a lot of addiction. And there's a difference, I think. Really, I don't think I know. There's a difference between sobriety, which is, you know, when you stop, when you put the drink down or you know, the drug down, um, but you put the drink down and you say, I'm going to, I'm going to be sober now. I'm not going to, you know, be an active alcoholic. And then really the work begins. You know, I mean, if you go to a detox center and you're there for, you know, three, four, five, six days, that's really the end for most people of the physical side of the addiction. Then the work begins on the mental side, um, the spiritual side, you know, the, the, the physical side of this disease that's been running your life for a long time usually. And so, you know, what does that look like? You know, the, the, the statistics are generally that 10 to 20 percent, maybe 15 to 20 percent of people actually get and stay sober after they've admitted being an alcoholic. So it's a pretty small percentage of people um, that, that achieve that. And I have always thought and believed that it's because there isn't enough emphasis on the work that needs to be done. You know, if you join AA, which isn't for everyone, there are people who get and stay sober um, outside of AA, but if you do uh, follow uh, or decide to make it, you know, uh, uh, make a commitment to being in AA, there's a whole program that's uh, built around it, um, you know, for um, 
recovery, whether it's the steps or the four absolutes or going to meetings or having a sponsor or, you know, the, and, and, and really what, it, what it's aimed at is giving you a place to be with like-minded people, right? So, um, but ultimately we drink and drug for a reason. You know, we have maybe, you know, a difficult childhood or trauma or, you know, uh, it just makes us feel better about ourselves. That becomes really a a big issue, um, you know, because if we don't get at a lot of those issues, if we don't get at them and, and heal from them, I see that we will return to that maladaptive behavior of using again. And I see it a lot. And um, it's the hardest work I think that we do. And, and so that, that's kind of the, the, the thought process behind it. Yeah. I like what you said about that. It's the hardest work because it's not that it's easy to put down the drug or put down the gambling or walk away from the, the thing that is eliminating the pain, right? Because it's, it's helping you to not feel the pain. The hard work is actually dealing with the pain. The hard work is actually figuring out um, why you were running and gunning and hiding and um, from all the ghosts that were catching up to you, right? Right. I often hear people say things like, oh, yeah, well, my dad, he was a dry drunk. And I'm always like fascinated by that com- you know, concept because when I hear you say that or hear you bring this topic up, that's kind of what goes through my head. Or, you know, um, he stopped gambling or he stopped drugging or pornography or whatever it was, but he would still, or she or they were still difficult to be around. They were still angry. Um, you know, they were still depressed. They were still anxious, you know, because that really hard work that a person has to do um, doesn't get addressed. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, it, you say hard work and, and it, it, it's really... The idea that I have, have come to grips with the with this concept that I spent maybe every day of my existence poisoning myself, you know, uh, it, you know, it says in the early step work that I was restored to sanity, and and if you say I was re- restored to sanity, then you must admit that you were in fact insane, and you know that's a that's an important uh, thought that sometimes gets walked right over in this in this program. You know, it's the first step is I'm powerless over alcohol. Well, that's a softer way of saying I was insane. You know, I mean, uh, when you get right down to it, um, to you know self-medicate to the point of addiction is, is and do that on a daily basis and do that to your own uh, destruction is pretty insane. Um, sure. And, you know, I remember um, learning from a gentleman, uh, Dr. Rick Serban, um, in one of his seminars on addiction. So he, um, at Emerge, he was someone who um, taught us a lot about addiction. He has a background in addiction. And he would say, you know, it always takes it always takes you places um, you never thought you'd go. It always will cost you more than you were ever willing to pay. 
And it's so true because, you know, you never think when you start to gamble that you're going to gamble away um, your house and your children's college fund and your savings and all the things. You never think you're going to um, drug away, you know, your whole existence, but yet that's, that's where it always takes you. And so what's really super hard, I think, to think about is when you get to those places um, and you get sober and then you have to deal with the carnage of the fallout. You know, it's like the nuclear fallout. It's all the, um, you know, shrapnel that's left behind. Yeah. But, you know, we can make um, excuses, you know, or we can, you know, get busy in the solution, right? Because there are solutions, you know, there are professionals, there are therapists, there are psychiatrists, there's medications, there's, you know, all kinds of different types of meetings. And, and you know, um, it's just that too often when we start to abuse drugs and alcohol is usually at a pretty early age. And so we stop maturing at that age. So if we start drinking like I did at 13, um, that becomes the end of our uh, maturing sometimes. And so you just described the, the carnage. Well, it's dealing with the adult world as a young teenager <laughs> is, you know, not something that would you know, be often advised, you know, dealing with, you know, mortgage payments or, you know, marriages or children as a 13-year-old. Think of that. Um, you know, that probably wouldn't go over very well. And, and so as you start to fail in those things, often your consumption, your brain change, your desire to be somewhere else other than in the midst of reality be, starts to increase as well. And, and then the, 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 you know, the human condition starts to just rely. Mm. Yeah. You know, I'm so reliant on this and I don't even realize it. The risk to return. Yeah. The risk to return becomes much greater. Well, yeah, let's talk a little bit about that too. Because I often find when I'm working also with individuals who are in recovery, um, that it's, you know, and, and I see, I see this with trauma as well. Okay. I see this with almost anything. There's, there's like an identified sick person. There's an identified unhealthy person and we can make the mistake, um, to think that, okay, well, once that person gets sober, everything will be okay. Or once that person gets medication or they deal with their depression, everything will be okay. Um, but the reality is it's systemic. You know, we're all impacted. We all are living in a, in an environment or a system or a family culture um, that, in, you know, participate in one way or another um, in that. And so tell me a little bit about how, you know, you see that in recovery and you see the importance of the system growing, the family, the spouse, the children, parents, siblings growing with that individual? Well, you know, the origin of the name of this podcast is that just because you change doesn't mean anyone else is going to change. You know, just because you stop drinking doesn't mean everybody's just going to, you know, rally around you. 
You know, um, I like to say that, you know, one truth does not erase a thousand lies. You know, and I think sometimes in early, you know, recovery, guys are like, yeah, but my wife still won't talk to me. I'm telling her the truth now. You know, I'm not staying out all night. I'm, you know, and I look at them and go, yeah, that's one truth versus how many thousands of lies. So there has to be an acceptance, I think, on the, um, uh, alcoholic or addicts uh, side to say that this is not going to happen overnight. And just because I get sober, I change, I start living a new life, doesn't mean the people around me are going to change and grow with me. If they do, you have a you have the chance of a really successful recovery, you know, because the people you love and that love you back are in the fight with you. But that's not always the case. And, you know, families break up and things like that. But it still cannot, you know, be the deciding factor on whether you reclaim your life and your sanity. Yeah. Yeah. It's how, I, I think a lot of the dance, too, is the shame-blame dance, don't you think? Um, there's just so much blame um, and then there's just so much um you know, internalizing of the shame. I am the problem. Um, it's because of me and, um, or just the, the, the stories that they tell. So I'm curious a little bit if you want to talk about um, how you see that part, you know, playing out. Right, right. Well, I mean, it's easy to, you know, blame the addict. It's easy to blame the alcoholic for the many, uh, uh, you know, uh, omissions of character is what I like to say, you know, when they, you know, made a fool of themselves or they made a fool of someone else or, you know, but it also covers up a lot of behavior that seems less than by the spouse or by the brother or by the father. Or, you know, I like to say that my older brother, who was in active addiction until he dropped dead at 40, covered, you know, was was worse than I was. So he, he you know, he got the attention you know, for misbehaving. And and when he was, you know, out of the picture, then my misbehaving became much more apparent. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's, um, there's, there's often family familial uh, issues that go into people choosing, you know, uh, alcohol and drugs, you know, uh, as a young person, and then continuing that behavior unabated for a long time. There's, there's usually family issues. And I think you know that from some of your work, too. Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting, because it's as if when when I say shame and, and blaming, too, it's the it's the system when the um, person who's in recovery, and, and so I'm going to kind of use it as a broad spectrum, that person in recovery, even if it's recovery, mental health, recovery of whatever, you know, any type of addiction, they start to get well, you know, they've got some time of sobriety underneath their belt, and they start to challenge the others um, and say like, hey, but what about you? And, and the, the, you know, you've asked me to do this, how come you're not doing this or I need you to do this? And it and it's almost as if the um, other person can't handle um, being identified or called out. And what's pretty fascinating is when we first got married, you know, you were you were sober um, three years. And, and like I had said, I thought that was a lot of time. 
And what I didn't realize is I've been a big part of your sobriety journey. And and I think a big part of it is we've tried to walk in sobriety together because somewhere early on in our marriage, I discovered my codependency and I discovered how I could easily contribute to the dynamic um, and it was easy for me to say like, oh, well, you know, you had the trauma history and, oh, you know, you were, you were a survivor because of that. So really, really, I'm the good person. I didn't really have problems, right? I, I've got it all figured out. And one day, you know, as your voice got stronger and you got um, healthier, you started to challenge me and how, how absolutely difficult that was. Your, your perfection balloon popped. <laughs> <laughs> Such the life of the codependent. Um, having said that, and it is—it's not as if I hadn't done work before, right? I had done work. I—I I, I had was not unfamiliar to the journey of therapy and healing, um, but I was unfamiliar with the dynamic in um, a marriage to actually be in partnership of sobriety or or a family. Um, and so I think that's just really huge. Well, you know, what I've learned, one of the um, lessons that I've learned in sobriety and in AA and in life in general is that the most powerful thing that I can put forth is a living, breathing example of what sobriety looks like. Because you can't tell another person to change. You could ask them. You could point out areas that maybe would be better if they changed. But the reality is that we're all on this individual journey that we can, you know, support and, and you know, love them through. But the, but the reality is there's nothing more powerful in my mind than the right example. You know, I used to go to meetings and I loved to watch the guys that set up the meeting. I like to watch the guys that made the coffee and greeted people at the door because they were not the guys ranting and raving at some new uh, new person about what they needed to do. They were just that ongoing, everyday example of how you reconstruct your life and not fast forward. You know, when I sponsor guys in AA, I have them sign a form that says, I will not fast forward because it's a daily reprieve. It's a daily, you know, challenge to say, I'm only focusing on the next 24 hours and I'm only focusing on the next 24 hours, you know, and so on and so forth. You know, it's a cliche and there's many cliches in AA, but one of them is, you know, it's a day at a time. That's really all we can focus on. I can't change tomorrow because it's not here yet. Um, but if I can be that living, breathing example of a strong desire to change and a willingness to put the work in that creates that change, there's a that's a powerful thing. I, I really think so. Oh yeah, and it really disrupts things because, you know, there's um, it's just everything is going to shift. You know, you've just changed the pH level of the family. You've changed, um, you know, um, the dynamic that everybody moves around because you're saying like, hey, um, I don't need everybody to move around me. We need to move together. 
Um, and so that, that, that's a really fascinating and hard concept. And, and we talk so much about the different types of therapies that, you know, you utilize and, and can engage in. And, um, and, and, and there's no, it's not a one-stop shop, you know, sobriety, no matter what you're, you're looking for requires, you know, addressing the mind, you know, the mental health, the mental illness, um, you know, whether it was created, you know, whether it was present before that led to um, the addiction or whether it's a byproduct of it. Um, you have to address the body, the physical health of the body, um, what caused, what was there before, what is now there as a result, um, as well as, you know, just the spirit. How has the spirit been impacted? Um, how, how, you know, what were what were you spiritually before and how do you rediscover your spirituality in that? Or find it in its original form because, you know, when you start as a, as a young teen, I mean, you know, your spirituality hasn't probably even begun, you know, in many ways. Yeah, your spirituality, you were pretty much told. Yes, you yes. Were, yeah, you're dragged you're... off to church or you're, you know, whatever that the circumstances are, um, it's handed down to you, you know. Um, sure. And we can even be... You know, we, we, we sometimes we minimize this, but I, I think this is also something to think about, you know, because there's process addictions, you know, so we often think of chemicals or we think of substances, right? But there's this whole realm of process addictions, and that's really um, more of a style of thinking or a style of doing. So perfectionism, um, spiritual spirituality, um, you know, there can be so many different things, exercise, you know, so many things that can also be an addiction, um, you know, that is beyond just putting a substance into our body. Um, and so I don't want to just make it about alcohol. That is your frame of reference. Right. Um, right. But I think our world um, has such a, a vastness of it. And, and the hard part with process is that um, anything in moderation isn't harmful to you. Um, but when you can't regulate it or it is harming relationships, harming you, then it is no longer something that is helping you cope. It's something that is actually um, taking you out, taking you away. Well, one of the things that I talk to um, guys I'm working with in the program is the development of core truths. Core truths, you know, are things that you believe in your mind, in your body, in your spirit. They're concrete. They're non-negotiable. They're real. They're tangible. And they have power. And unfortunately, so many of us were offered truths from someone else, whether it was a father to a son or a mother to a daughter or a mother to a son or, or whatever, um, somebody with the power to say, this is what you should believe. And, and if they're doing that in a concrete form, you're going to take that into, into your adult life as one of your core truths. I say, let that core truth be something you develop and you believe in. You know, go on a spiritual journey. Find out if God is real in your own heart and mind and wash out, wash away the residue of 
the core truths that were handed down because they're not yours. They're your ancestors, you know, and if they aren't if you get back from that spiritual trek and you hold on to some of those, they were probably very well invested in really important things. And they are something you can carry forward. But if they start to wash away and erode and, and, and fade, you need to replace them with things that are real in your heart, mind, and body. Well, yeah. I, you know, what's fascinating is as you were talking about that, I was thinking about the teenager, right? So, so many addictions begin in teenage years, even cutting, you know, like, again, I keep thinking about all these different types yeah, of addictions. Yeah, we don't want to limit it. There's we, many we, different types yeah, of addictions. Yeah, we don't want to limit it. But it, it, it is true that a lot of that starts in the adolescent brain. And what's fascinating to me is I start to think about, well, what is an adolescent trying to do? They're trying to develop a sense of self. Who are they in this world? What is their identity? Um, you know, what are their roles? Um, do they have a strong sense of it? Is their role confusion? Is their identity confusion? And so often we can have so many other individuals, parents, older siblings, systems, um, put their identities on us. And it's so important for us to rebel um, in our adolescent years so that we can find a sense of who we are. And rebelling isn't negative. I mean, in nature, there's a form of rebellion in order to individualize. Um, you know, it takes a, a somewhat rebellious spirit for the chicken to hatch out of the egg, right? right. There has to be this, this way to fight, to find this individualization of who we are. We need that. That is healthy. Um, and when it gets kind of mislabeled or it gets burdened on the addict's back, when they finally start to become healthy and they're actually rebelling in a healthy way, they're saying, hey, hey, um, what I'm seeing or what I have to say um, is meaningful to this system because I'm seeing things and all the work I've done um, that I want others to see. And it can sometimes be dis disregarded or sometimes not listened to or heard. And I think, you know, you've experienced that in your own world. Like, oh, Matt, you were just a mess up. You know, like, we're not going to listen to you. You're number five of the boys. You know, like, what do you have to offer? Number five child. Four, right. the four boy. Fourth, number, my fourth, my fourth father boy. would say, here's my Fifth fourth child. oldest son. <laughs> and I'd be like, oh boy. So what do you have to contribute? <laughs> what an introduction. But you had so much to contribute, right? Well. Um, and it's, you know, beginning to recognize our younger siblings or our children. Um, they have something to teach us as they're navigating through um, these seasons of their life. And so as they're walking in sobriety. And so I see that it's universal. I tell people all the time this. It, I, I tell them all the time, therapy is dangerous. It is risky. You are risking relationships because if you start to grow and you start to heal, um, people will start to not like you if they don't want to contribute with it. And you will put tension well, in the system. Yeah. And I can speak to this from a male standpoint, that recovery and growth are often housed in vulnerability, you know, and being willing to be vulnerable and being willing, you know, to to be open, you know, and and and, and look at some of the feelings and some of the the ways that we react and, you know. Uh, 
men are all gung-ho about that. Yes, I want to change. I'm, I'm willing to be vulnerable. And then they are vulnerable. And then they run like their hair's on fire from, from life because that feels wrong. You know, men are taught the complete opposite of vulnerability. Chin up, you know, don't let them see a sweat, you know, uh, be the strongest guy in the room, know the most in the room. You know, um, I mean, all of these affirmations that avoid and evade, you know, vulnerability, you know, they run from vulnerability because that's weakness, you know, but most growth comes from weakness. Most growth comes from mistakes. Most growth comes from the underside of success. You know, um, that's why when sometimes you meet someone, they admit a man, especially they immediately introduce themselves as having a title because that is the banner they live under. That is the that is the, you know, the identity that they have. You know, it's not. I'm this guy and, and, you know, I believe in these things. It's I'm this guy and I have this title and I don't want to be vulnerable. I don't want to grow and change and, and move forward, I, you know. And so, uh, unfortunately, there's, you know, uh, a lot of, you know, wives and mothers and sisters and, and, you know, women who are trying desperately to move them towards healing and vulner and vulnerability because they know the value they have. They know yeah. the value these men have if you can just break through that outer crust, that outer shell that is drilled into them since a very early age. Yeah, I love that. And you bringing this to the forefront, it is probably a topic that we could um, peel away the layers um, in some of our um, future episodes because it's so deep, um, the difference between how men and women will approach healing and recovery and mental health and um, just in general. Um, even just going to the doctor, um, women are more likely to go to the doctor and address their health than, than men are. And so I think it's it's this bravado and this fear of vulnerability, but yet, um, you know, we, we are all neurologically, um, psychologically, spiritually, physically created with those sets of, you know, neurons and genes and organs that create that vulnerability. And so somehow, um, we've, we've said that men and women are different. And I think there are some differences but the reality is that there's a lot more similarities and complementing of one another um, that we just, I think, um, could tap more into and would love to mm, yeah. talk more about. And so, you know, as we begin to just close this uh, episode, I, I think what's really important, and I'm hoping our readers take out of this, our readers, our listeners, nobody's reading. Um, that's my dyslexia, everyone. Nobody... I haven't really talked about her if yet. If you are reading this podcast. <laughs> You're in trouble. <laughs> You're in trouble. Oh, gosh. Okay. Anyways, so for those who are listening, you know, to take away um, just how important it is if you are walking in um, a season of recovery um, that you continue to do the work that you're doing. Or if you haven't started that season, you know, most of these things start with a dialogue. 
Sometimes it's the judge pointing his finger at you, and sometimes it's your wife leaving or your husband leaving, or, you know, so it, it starts with some action. You know, they often say, you know, well, you got to hit rock bottom. I will tell you right now that rock bottom is highly overrated as a, as a stimulant because, you know, rock bottom could be prison, rock bottom could be death, rock bottom could be, you know. Yeah. So, so it's important, I think, if you're in pain and you want to change, have a dialogue with some people. Be open to discussing options and how how can things get better for me? I need your help. You know, um, we we just we we get so isolated in addiction that we really need to break through and say, you know what? Raise your hand. I can't do this on my own. Yeah. Um, so. Well, I appreciate your passion for this. You know, I hope our listeners really recognize how invested you are in. Um, coming alongside those who are beginning their journey of recovery, those who are um, decades in, years in, seasons in. Um, and that's one thing that I love about you is how invested and passionate you are about this topic. Mm. So thanks for um, you know just opening this conversation up for our listeners. And um, until um, next time, um, we wish all of you well and um, just that you are covered in the grace and love of um, our Savior. Great. Thanks, Victoria. Keep listening. There is a time for